I love getting together with you guys and doing life and doing church, and it's so much fun uh, to be here. We're launching right in to a new series that gets going this week. It's gonna last for like four or five weeks. And so, um, so we're gonna jump right into it. And the title of the series is Address the Mess. Address the Mess. Now, sometimes people ask me, uh, and it's a question that pops a lot of times. Pastor Mike, how do you preach? Do you preach line by line through books of the Bible? Do you preach topically? How do you preach? Are you exegetical? They, they throw all this terminology at me. And you know what my answer always is? Yes. We do all those things. We do all those things. So, uh, so we're in the middle of a series here. This is a, uh, we're launching a series here. It's called Address the Mess. And here's kind of the big idea for this series that we're gonna be walking through is that all of us have a mess. We're either in a mess, just came out of a mess. We're like one decision away from being back in a mess. And we all experience the mess of life and we all need help to deal with it and get out of it. If you catch nothing else, you know what we're talking about today. You're with me in this. And I was thinking about messes. You know, it's a funny thing. I have three kids now that are all under 10. And so if I get a warning that you're on your way to visit at my house, there's a thing that happens. I'm not gonna call it terror, but there's a thing that happens in my gut as I look around and survey the mess, right? I'm like, okay, Lego's here. Guys are over here. Half-eaten sandwiches are over here. The mountain of laundry's over here. Come on, am I the only one? Right? And we're pulling all those things together, kicking it in a room and like duct taping caution tape. Like that room's off limits, right? <laughs> Trying to make, I'm the only one? I'm the only one? Okay. When my wife's home, everything's immaculate, but usually me that has, you know. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, I gotta be honest. I played that off like it's because of my kids. But before I had kids, I had the same problem right? If I knew you were coming over, it was like, oh man, I got to get all these things together. We all feel that terror. Why is that? Because we all have some sense of not wanting other people to see our mess. Not wanting other people to know that we're mess. Somehow putting on some type of armor that says, hey, no mess here, nothing to see here, no mess here, right? And I was thinking about it because we experience physical messes, but we experience more mess than that. I remember a particularly awful mess for me. I was uh, just completing my second year of college, of Bible college. And my first year of college, I was pretty committed. I was like, God, I'm gonna give you one year, go to Bible college, and then I'm gonna go to a real school and make lots of money, and then I'll be the guy who sends all the kids to camp, right? Come ask me if you need a scholarship, I'll be your guy. I wanted to do that. But at the end of one year of Bible college, God didn't give me permission to leave. So my second year of Bible college, I got grumpy about halfway through. And I was like, well, maybe if I just submarine everything, I'll just not have permission to stay. And that'll be just as good as, not per as having permission to leave. So I went from the academic dean's list to the academically ineligible list <laughs> by paying for a lot of classes that I didn't attend, right? I went from a four-year degree to a five and a half years to finish that degree over just that moment, right? And I, and I started making a mess of things. I wasn't going to class. I wasn't doing my work. Um, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't honoring the things I was paying. I was going into debt. I was not being responsible at all. And I had just gotten married. So counseling was around the corner. But there was a moment as I was intentionally submarining and spiraling down uh, my life, I made a phone call to one of my mentors and I, and I was just like, hey, I just want you to be the first to know that this didn't work out. I'm gonna go do something else. And he says, hey, that's great. It's fine. Do what God called you to do. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, it's just God's calling you to leave, leave. I'm like, 
Well, what, do you, what does that mean? He goes, well, you've heard from the Lord, right? I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, I just don't want this thing. And he goes, so you're telling me that you're intentionally submarining the thing you know God called you to do so that you can get a new word from God? Do you think that's gonna work out that way? And I was like, oh, that's messy, right? But I found myself in a mess. I knew God's best. I knew his plan for me. I knew that I, if nothing else, while he called me there, I should give my best, serve my best, do my best. But I wasn't doing it. Why? Because I was in a mess. And things were messy. It's funny because we all go through seasons where we find ourselves in a mess. But <laughs> I, I, I've personally made a lot of messes. You might be able to tell a, a great mess. Pretty soon I'll tell you some stories about actual funny messes. But, uh, but, you know, we've all been through messes. And here's the other thing that tends to happen to us. When we're in a mess, we look at other people's messes and we think either one of two things. Either their mess isn't as bad as my mess and we start playing the comparison game and we start saying, why can't my mess only be like their mess, right? Their mess is, how, how are they gonna spend their vacations? They don't know which option they're gonna do. Their mess is, how are they gonna get their perfect kids into their perfect school and do their perfect thing, right? We start elevating someone else's mess in our own mind because we don't realize that behind every mess there's a story and we don't know their story. Or we start looking at other people's mess and this one's really dangerous and we start saying, well, at least my mess isn't their mess. Like I might be messy, but at least I'm not that kind of messy. At least I'm not that. And then we forget, again, our mess has a story, but we forget that their mess has a story too. So one of the messes that I'm guilty of since I've been married, I have discovered that there's a whole genre of movies I didn't know about when I was single called romantic comedies. <laughs> now, I have managed to avoid musicals so far. Don't, don't throw judgment or hate on me, I'm just saying. So far, I've managed to avoid them. But I've had to fully embrace the romantic comedy. So I'm gonna show you a clip from a romantic comedy. And some of you are like, what are you doing with that in church? Because it's hilarious. And I want you to catch what's happening in this scene, okay? There is a, a, a group of people, they're having dinner and they're having dessert and there's one brownie left. And they decide to determine who's gonna get the last brownie. They have to share the mess of their life. And whoever has the worst mess gets the last brownie. Now there's somebody there who they think has a charmed life and she tries to defend her messy life. So take a look with me. Here's why I love that scene. One, because I know it. And, uh, <laughs> and two, uh, I just love that every, every mess has a story. And no matter what your story is, what your perspective is, your mess has a story and it's valid in your story. It's valid as part of your story. <clears throat> and that's the thing. We have a tendency to look at other people's messes and sometimes it causes us to miss the mess in the mirror and we miss the mess that was looking right back at us. I've made a lot of messes. You've made a lot of messes. Let's agree that messes keep us together. Now, what's crazy about messes is the reality is that messes occur when we have some expectation, some ex outside expectation that we believe is the standard that we should achieve. There's some outside, some other voice that has given us some kind of a standard, and we believe that we have to meet that standard in order to be okay. And here's the problem. Whenever there's a law, no one keeps the law perfectly. No one keeps the law Perfectly. It's a tension that we find ourselves in regularly. None of us keep the law perfectly. Now, here's the thing. With our messes, 
If you're a Jesus person, if you've been following Jesus uh, for a while, if you're a Christian, one of the cool things about recognizing how messy this world is and how messy we are is we think that the mess is part of what drew Jesus to us. That the mess is part of why God's plan had to happen. So when we read John 3, 16, you know, the bumper sticker verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. When we read that verse, what we really mean when we say world is the mess. For God so loved the mess. He so loved people who were broken, who had made mistakes, who had blown it, who had rejected him, who had done things that they shouldn't have done and not done things that they should have done. When we read that, that's what we mean. That's what we're actually saying. And the story of Jesus is the story of God meeting us in our mess. How cool is that? Our story, the story that we gather around today for, the story that last week on Easter we said had power because of the historical veracity of it, because the truth of God sending his son to pay the price for our mistakes so whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. The story is that God looked down at our mess and recognized that no one could keep the law perfectly. No one could do it. So John, when he talks about Jesus and he introduces to him in John chapter one, I'm gonna be in Romans chapter three in a while if you're, if you're looking for where to go. But in John chapter one, John says it this way. He says that, that first the law was given through Moses, John chapter one, verse 17, but that grace and truth then came through Jesus Christ. What is that? It's that God realized that there was a structure, there was a system, and we were all under the system and none of us could make it perfectly. None of us could keep it perfectly. So he brought the rest and the fulfillment of the law in in this picture in Jesus who brought grace and brought truth to us. Now this is messy, so I'm gonna unpack it a little bit and help us uh, make sense of it. I'm gonna be in uh, Romans chapter three in just a minute here and you can jump over there. But the person who best explains this after Jesus for all of us to understand it is a guy named Paul. Now, Paul has a fascinating story. We talk about Paul a lot because he wrote a lot of the New Testament. But when Paul jumps onto the scene in history, post the resurrection, post Peter preaching and thousands of people becoming Christians, Christ followers, and all of a sudden, this group of Christ followers starts what Paul sees as perverting the Jewish religion. He thinks they're a sect. He thinks they're a cult. He thinks they've stolen from the culture of Judaism and manipulated it. And so he bursts on the scene and he's educated and he is, has the best education that is available. He is uh, uh, very intelligent, very sharp, and he is ruthless. And he shows up on the scene and his entire mission is to capture these rebel rousers and snuff out this new booming faith that has begun to birth post Jesus's resurrection. Now, you may know the story of Paul and you know that he gets knocked off his donkey, has an interaction with God. God says, why are you persecuting me? It shows up, uh, he shows up in history going from one massive paradigm of hunting down Christians to one of the most radical believers of Jesus that the world has ever known. And because of him, churches start all around the Mediterranean. Letters get written that become part of our Bible. And, uh, and in the next 25, 30 years of his life, he is the most influential player on the Christian scene of believers. He goes from a radical persecutor of believers to a radical believer. And it infects and infiltrates every part of his life. 
His belief about truth and grace changes everything for him. It changes the way he deals with conflict. It changes the way he deals with whether or not he has wealth or he doesn't have wealth. It changes everything about him. And so churches start popping up. He's starting churches. People that he started churches with start more churches. They're starting and over and over. This this cell-based ministry is exploding. And pretty soon within about 25 uh, 25 years of Jesus's death and resurrection, 1,500 miles away in Rome, there's tons of Christians. There's tons of Christians. And so Paul writes a letter to these Christians in Rome. And and here's the beautiful thing about Rome. Rome, it was known as the eternal city. It was the hub of civilization. Every ethnicity passed through there. Every social class passed through there. Everyone passed through Rome. And this amazing underground church goes public and suddenly there's Christians and believers everywhere in Rome. And we know historically this is true. If you were here last week, we talked about how by AD 64, Nero, the, uh, the emperor, blamed the burning of Rome on Christians. There was enough Christians in Rome that he was like, these crazy Jesus people must have done this, right? So we know that that happens. So Paul writes this letter to these believers and he starts saying, listen, let me tell you what it's like to follow Jesus. And Romans becomes this incredible letter of what it's like to follow Jesus. And in the midst of this, he starts talking about the mess that we all experience. And I wanna walk us through that. So if you're in Romans uh, chapter three, beginning in verse 19, and you may want your pen out because you may wanna highlight or underlight some things if you're one of those folks. If you got your Bible app out and you double tap, get your finger ready to double tap some things. But in Romans chapter three, beginning in verse 19, Paul's talking to this eclectic group of believers. And he says this, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says it to those who are under the law. Okay, Paul, what in the world are you talking about? (laughs) Some of you are like, man, this got weird all of a sudden. I'm with you, don't worry. Here's all he's saying. If there's a law and you know about that law and you're under that law, then that law is over you. Pretty makes sense, right? So here's, here's an illustration. I want, I want to illustrate it for you. I'm going to use my umbrella here inside. Someone told me that's bad luck, but I ain't superstitious. Check it out. When I was a kid, I don't have very many people who put law over me. It was just my parents, right? But they put some laws over me. And I sat underneath their laws. Now, their laws were pretty simple. Pretty much the primary law that I had growing up was every day after school, I had to come straight home. I had to clean up whatever mess I made in the morning before I left for school and then just leave a note of where I was going. And that was pretty much my whole law. That sounds like a reasonable law, but guess what? I broke that law all the time. I broke that law so often that eventually my dad broke his foot off in that law. (laughs) Right? Some of you are with me. I had to learn. But here's the thing. The law was pretty simple. It was pretty basic, but I couldn't sit under that law. I didn't observe it perfectly. No one keeps the law perfectly. Here's what's hilarious. If you look at the scriptures, in the very beginning, there was only one law. Don't eat from this tree. There was one law. We tanked it on one law. We tanked it from the very beginning. Now there's like 11, 1200 pages in this thing. If we didn't make it when it was just us, God, and don't eat from that tree, and we couldn't do the law perfectly then, then why do you think that you have to be perfect today? 
Paul's saying, if you're in the law and you're under law, that law is over you. So listen, I got out of the house and I went off to college. When I got to college, suddenly there was a whole new set of laws. Now this was confusing. Because I didn't have a lot of laws growing up. I didn't have that many rules. Suddenly there was this whole list of rules. There was things like a curfew. And that was over me. And there was codes of conduct. And there was other boundaries that they said, this is what we expect. Let me tell you one of the funny ones. There was a law, I'll call it a law at my school, that said you weren't allowed to dance. Now, I was a movie guy, so I'd seen Footloose. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Uh, you don't want me going crazy with these umbrellas. Someone will record it, and I'll be on YouTube, and that'll be the end of this ministry. <laughs> but listen, guess who isn't keeping that law? This guy. Eventually, I went and talked with him. It was pretty funny. We had a good talk about it. But there was a few laws. I couldn't keep those laws. Well, then I was an adult. And I, up until that point, I was under some laws I didn't even realize. There was a thing called the Constitution. I learned about it in like eighth grade, but I didn't pay any attention. There were laws of the land. There were things called speed limits. All these laws. Now, sometimes I kept the law, but guess what? I didn't keep the law perfectly. Then I got jobs. And some of those jobs had laws. Things like dress code or starting times. And I didn't keep all those laws perfectly either. Why? Because nobody keeps the law perfectly. Now, I don't know what laws you're under. But whatever laws you're under, here's what I do know. You don't keep those laws perfectly. Some of you are like, well, I don't have any of those laws. And I don't really believe in the scriptures, so those laws don't really apply to me. Maybe the only laws you have are your basic morals your own moral code. Here's what I know about you. You've broken your own moral code. You said, I'm never gonna do that, or I'm only gonna do this. I'm not gonna eat that. I'm only gonna go here. I'm not gonna drink that. I'm not gonna go with that. I'm not. And you've broken your own, the laws that you made for yourself. You've broken those laws. So here's Paul saying, whatever laws are over you, Let's just acknowledge you're under some law. There's an external pressure and you're aware of it and it's in your life. And so how are you going to deal with that? Because here's the reality, we're all under some law. <clears throat> Let me keep reading that verse. Romans 3.19 is amazing, by the way. He says that we're under law. So he keeps on going. He goes, and so we're under this law so that every mouth may be, check out this word right here, silenced. And the whole world, the whole world held accountable to God. Here's what he's implying. The fact that you acknowledge that there's a perfect version of you and you're not it is an instant accountability to the only one who is perfect. It creates instant accountability to the, You're like, I don't even know what I believe about God and all those things. But you agree somewhere that there's a perfect version, even of your own morality. You got that from somewhere and you recognize that you can't meet that. Paul says, that's a form of accountability to God. Now, what else is amazing about that is he says, every mouth, when you recognize that, gets silenced. What is he saying? He's saying, understanding that you can't perfectly operate under any laws should cause you to keep your mouth shut. 
It should keep your ego from getting too big about how awesome you are. And it should keep your accusations in your own mouth when it comes to someone else's failures. He's writing this to the early church that's just popped up in Rome. Can you imagine if they heard this and got this? And if this had been in our church culture, if we got, can you imagine if the church today just got this part right? That us recognizing that nobody's perfect is enough reason for us to hush up when we see someone else is not perfect. But they're not perfect, so offensive. They watch Fox News, it's ah. There they watch CNN, it drives me crazy. I don't know, like, I'll just go to every, you know, you can go to either side. And we get so frustrated, we're just gonna say something. Paul's like, ah, 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 ah. You recognize that you're under a law that you can't keep. And because of that, that should cause you to hush your mouth and recognize the only person that you're accountable to is God. This is amazing. It does, it keeps us humble and it keeps us from judging. We talked about this in the do nots. We talked about this in the do nots when Jesus said, do not judge, right? Matthew chapter seven. He goes, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? He's saying, acknowledge you have your own mess. Recognize your own mess. Your own mess should neutralize you from getting in the midst of everybody else's mess. It's tough, but it's true. Jesus articulated it clearly. Paul said, this is part of the thing that we do. Now, it's beautiful about this is the people he's writing to, they're an eclectic group. They have all kinds of different laws that they fall under. Some of them are Jewish and they have the entire Torah and Old Testament and the Talmud and the law of their, of their people. And he's like, you have all those laws and you have the laws on top of laws to help you follow those laws and you don't follow those laws. Some of them are Jesus people who, who don't have a Jewish background. They never had any of those laws. They have a very simple set of laws to follow. The laws of Jesus, which were pretty easy. Started with the golden rule principle. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It's a pretty basic law. What's funny is, um, you know, raising kids, once they were verbal, this was probably the first kind of law that we taught them. Trying to teach your kid, hey, don't do that unless you want someone to do that to you. Don't do to anyone what you, I can remember time and time again with my little ones, Braden mostly, <laughs> just kind of getting shoulder, shoulders in front of me and locking eyes and say, actually Mason was the one, you're right. <laughs> I could see by your face, you're like, you picked the wrong one. Mason was the one. <laughs> I love you, Mason. <laughs> Looking at him and saying, do you want someone to do that to you? No, then don't do that to them. It's a simple law that Jesus gave us, right? It seems like a universal truth law. He also said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of the law. You do this right. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commands. But guess what? No matter how simple he made the law, they tanked. They failed. They made a mess. That particular neighbor was the one that just drove them crazy. And it popped out of them and it squeezed out of them and it leaked out of them. And Paul says, hey, don't do that. Just be silent. Romans chapter three, verse 20. Let's keep going. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight 
by observing the law. He's saying, you can't do the law perfectly. The law won't perfect you. You can't get enough behavior modification into your life to where you are perfectly observing the law. Whether it's the law of Moses that came that we all uh, receive now in the Old Testament, whether it's the simple commands of Jesus, whether it's your own moral code, you're gonna fail. So you can't use the law to get perfect. It doesn't work. Rather, the, through the law, we became, and I love this, we became conscious of our sin. He goes, the purpose of the law was just so that we have to have an honest moment that all of us have made mistakes. All of us have made mistakes. No one gets to go, well, I'm perfect. So deal with that. He's basically saying the best the law can do for you is make you aware that there's a perfect and you're not it. Thanks, law. But that's exactly Paul and Jesus' point. None of us were perfect. None of us could do it on our own. None of us had everything within us to totally accomplish perfection. He's been making that point over and over again since the garden. <laughs> Luke chapter 6, 37, uh, verse 37, Jesus says it this way in the don't judge comment. He says, don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give, it'll be given to you. See, he flips it. He says, you think your job is to judge, don't do that. You think your job is to condemn, don't do that. Forgive and you'll be forgiven, do that. Give and it'll be given to you, do that. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For the measure with which you use, it'll be measured to you. So we know our job is not the condemning job, our job is the forgiving job. Our job is not the judging job, our job is the giving job. Jesus said, just do it what you want done to you. So here's the point. Whatever the standard is, we fall short. Whatever the standard is. I don't know what your standard is. Whatever your standard is, you fall short, I fall short. Whatever my standard is, you fall short, I fall short. I don't know if you use the scriptures as your standard. I'm not sure how you do that, but we're all in the same boat falling short of the standard of perfection. And then Paul says this, verse 21. But now, I love when there's a but in the scriptures, right? It's always a, oh no, here's this, but now here comes God, right? So here comes God onto the scene. But now a righteousness from God. What does that mean? That means you can be made perfect, whole in the presence of God. You can be made clean, not from you, from God. It says apart from the law, it's not connected to the law at all, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. He's saying, if you really knew the law, you'd know this was coming. That all the law pointed to this reality. Verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, this is so powerful. To all who believe, there is no difference. You should underline that. That should rock your world. That should challenge your theology, your worldview, your picture of God. That should challenge everything that you think you know about being perfect and being good and being good enough because Paul says to a very eclectic group of people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, very diverse, ethnically diverse, Jews, Greeks, Romans, wealthy upper class, lower class, slaves, men, women. He looks at all of these groups so divided by culture and says, all of you are in the same boat. You're all facing the same thing. 
and the righteousness that comes, comes from God. The cleanup job that you need comes from God and it's available to all who believe there's no difference. There's no difference. There's no difference. Some of you are like, you don't understand my story, my background, what I've done. Okay, but I understand the scripture says there's no difference. But you don't understand ethnically or what my family has believed. Or we're all, okay, but there's no difference. You don't understand, you know, culture thinks I'm an outcast. I don't, oh, okay, yeah, I get all that. That's great. I just know that when it comes to becoming righteous through Jesus, it's a faith decision that requires that you believe and then there's no difference. There's no difference. You make the decision to believe and there's no difference. All I know is that that's insanely good news. That's insanely good news. That is world-changing, life-changing, ridiculous, good news. And then here's the crescendo. You thought that was the best part. Here's the best part. Verse 23, he says, for all. Now, here's the thing. When the Bible says all, we either believe that it means all or we think just some. But in this case, he says for all. For all have sinned. Sin's a fancy word for rejecting God, violating God. But literally in this, he's saying for just failing to uphold whatever law you put yourself under. All of us have blown it. All of us have made mistakes. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's stop right there for a second. He doesn't say that God is no longer glorious. He doesn't say that God will just unperfect himself so we can hang out, right? Because we have a major dilemma once we recognize that we're not perfect if we believe that God is perfect. Because if our not perfect were to get in the presence of his perfect, we'd probably just explode. There's a reason why in the Old Testament, they couldn't see God face to face. They couldn't get into relationship with God. The imperfect in them, in the presence of his perfect, the two things can't exist in the same space. And then we just toast. And he's like, I gotta solve that problem for you because I have glory. I'm perfect, but you're short of that. You have lack, you have not glory. You have less than perfect. So your less than perfect is in conflict with my perfect, but I wanna be in relationship with you. So here's how, and are justified freely by his grace. Remember I told you Jesus came to bring us truth and grace justified says means made right, found not guilty, cleaned up, restored, revived. We're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. He paid for us, redeemed us, punched our ticket, canceled our debt, said, I know all the stuff you did, but you're not guilty. That's crazy. That's crazy good news. That's crazy love. That's crazy for our theology. That changes everything. This changes everything. I, I, I think that this picture is so important because it basically tells us that from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, God knew we were gonna struggle. We were gonna have lack. We were gonna come short of his glory. And he always had a plan to bring us back into relationship with him. And this is what it looked like. It looked like a free payment. Now here's, well, why, why did someone have to pay? Can God just wipe the deck? Well, then he wouldn't be just, right? There had to be payment. You wouldn't respect a judge, come on. You wouldn't respect a judge if there was someone they were found guilty in court, right? And then the judge was just like, ah, we're just gonna let all that slide. 
you know, something horrific or whatever, right? You would say there has to be, there has to be a punishment. It has to be made right. It has to be just. And so God said, okay, I got, I got that nature. It's part of my glory and my perfection to be just. So I'm gonna pour all of that out on the one who had no sin, no mistake, so that the one that did have sins and did have mistake could be found not guilty. He took the charge. He took the case. He took the fall. He took the penalty. He took it all because he wants you. And he wants to know you. And you're like, well, that's not fair. Like, I can put in some work, right? I can put in some work. I could do my part. God's like, that's not how I keep score. I don't keep score the way you keep score. You don't owe me. You're not in debt anymore. This is free. You just get to believe. Here's the thing. When we start thinking that way about our mess, it changes everything. It changes the way we approach God. It changes the way we approach our life. It changes the way we approach our faith. And it helps us to see something. I said this earlier, but it's just true. We recognize that all of us are in the same boat. You're in the same boat with that person who thinks, believes, acts, behaves way over on the other end of the spectrum. The moral of the story is this. We all have something in common. We're a mess. You have something in common. Now, this is tough for you, maybe. That person that you can't stand at work that's driving you crazy. You have something in common with them. You're both a mess. That family member that's no longer invited to Christmas. Woo. I'll let that sit for a second. That's a good water break moment. The moral of the story is this, guys. We're a mess. The moral of the story is this, we're a mess. When you see the mess in someone else, it should just remind you that we're all a mess. We're all messy. We all made mistakes. None of us keeps the law perfectly. Scripture says, hey, you break part of the law, you broke the whole law. Like, I didn't do that part. So? I was speeding, but I didn't cross over the yellow line. Okay. You broke the law. And then I love this because the picture is just so clear that the answer to our mess always has been and always will be grace. And here's where grace is so incredibly powerful. In the ancient world, in ancient civilizations, this was an incredibly profound and new picture. Prior to Jesus, there was no picture of God having grace like this. In ancient cultures and ancient faiths, they just did things to placate God. And their picture was, if God ever showed up, it was either to abuse, manipulate, or extract wrath and revenge on humans, whatever God they would have believed in. And the idea that the God of the universe who literally created us wanted to interact with us so bad that he would send his son into the world to establish for us his grace, that he didn't want to punish us, that he didn't want to give us what, he deserved, what we deserved, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible, the God of creation, that what he literally wanted was to have relationship with us and not to punish us. That was a completely foreign idea until Jesus. And suddenly we have a picture of God's heart that's bigger and more radical than anything we could have imagined. And he sends grace into our lives. So let me ask you this question. Where can you use some grace today? Where can you use some grace? 
What could grace do for you? What would grace change if you allowed it to interact with your life? The answer to your mess is grace. Where's your mess at? Is your mess relationally with somebody else? And grace has to come into play. Some not getting what you deserve and not expecting from them to get something that you think they deserve might change everything. Maybe the mess you made today is with your family. You made decisions. You had an attitude. You created a mess there. You weren't present when you should have been present. You weren't, whatever it is. You have a mess. The answer to your mess is always God's grace. Maybe you've made a mess of a relationship. You broke a boundary. You gave your heart away. You did something you shouldn't have done. The answer to your mess is always God's grace. Maybe your mess is in the workplace. You haven't been honest. Maybe you've been gossiping. Maybe you've been working and manipulative and done something, you've cheated, whatever. And maybe even in your situation, you feel so justified. But there's this law at work. And you go home and you're like, oh, I just feel the pressure of knowing I didn't do what I should have done. I didn't keep it perfectly. The answer to your mess is grace. Maybe your mess is just with the person in the mirror. Maybe the mess is you're looking at your life and you're saying, I keep doing the things I don't want to do, the things I shouldn't have done. I keep, I keep being me and I'm the mess, the way I think and what I've done and the choices I've made and the decisions I've made and the attitudes of my heart. And the mess is just simply having the courage to look in the mirror and be honest about your own mess. And the answer to your mess is God's grace. <laughs> Remember, God knew from the beginning that you were going to be a mess. Nothing you've done has surprised him. Here's what's tough. Some of you are like, Pastor Mike, you really don't understand. If you had any idea how bad I've royally messed this up, if you had any idea of the wounds I've inflicted, of the damage that I've caused, of the fallout, of the guilt, of the shame, whatever that's there, if you just had any idea, then you'd know that this story can't be my story. And I would just tell you what I do know is that according to the word of God, that's nonsense, that it's not true and that it's a lie. Because according to the word of God, his grace is sufficient for you. His power is literally made perfect when you're weak. When you depend on him and rely on him, he's enough. Would you stand with me? <clears throat> In just a moment, we're going to sing. But I just want to have an honest moment with you guys and recognize that I'm in a room full of messes. The guy with the microphone's a mess. And I acknowledge that. But here's, but God. And his grace is sufficient and it's available when you believe. And for some of you today, just remembering and acknowledging that moment again is the whole picture. In the next several weeks, we're gonna tease this out a little bit. We're gonna talk specifically about when you've made the mess, what do we do? When someone else has made a mess and it's now our thing, what do we, we're gonna walk through all this stuff. But I think it'd be important before we leave this moment to just simply acknowledge for some of us in the room, we haven't had a real honest moment with Jesus in a long time about this. Maybe you've hovered around and, and heard some truth and you've thought about it, but today you just need to make a step of faith to say, you know what? I haven't trusted that Jesus paid it all. I haven't trusted. I know I've heard, I know whatever moral code, whatever moral law I've been operating under, I know that I've blown it and I haven't taken that step of faith. I got a lot of questions. Don't worry, we're gonna answer questions. 
But I know and recognize in this moment that today I've got to take a step of faith and just simply acknowledge I need him. I need help. I want to go on this journey. And just as an outward expression that that's you. And I know this is awkward because I didn't ask everyone to close their eyes, but we can be honest. We have strength in our family here today. And if that's you, would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, I need his help.